Part three of Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. Ophelia, the Rose of Elsinore. From The Girlhood of Shakespeare's Heroines. By Mary Cowden Clark. Part three. One fine noonday, when the heat of the sun had compelled Jutha and the little girl to seek the shade of the forest depths, Ophelia interrupted the story then telling, by exclaiming suddenly, "'Look, Jutha! See there!' Jutha looked in the direction of the child's pointing finger, and saw to her surprise a milk-white horse, saddled and bridled, coming leisurely along beneath the trees, cropping the grass, and looking as if he had strayed from his fastenings. "'The beautiful creature!' exclaimed Jutha, rising from the seat Ophelia and she occupied on the spreading root of a tree. "'What costly housings it has! It looks like a fairy-horse, the steed of some of those gallant princes in the stories. And it is gentle, too. See how it lets me lay my hand upon its bridle and pat its neck. It is well trained, and belongs to some noble master, doubtless. But who can he be? And where?' The young girl held the rein, and looked about her in perplexity. While the white horse tossed its arching neck, nearly jerking the curb from her hand, pawed the ground and neighed shrill and loud. "'Look, Jutha!' once more exclaimed the child. "'There among the trees, on that mossy slope, do you see?' "'He is sleeping,' said Jutha, in a hushed answer, "'and soundly, too. Not even the neighing of his good horse can disturb him.' The girl and the child crept a little nearer to the figure they saw lying there. It was that of a man, in a rich hunting-dress. His plumed hat had been placed so as to shade his eyes during sleep, but it had fallen partly aside, and showed a face finely shaped, with features marked and handsome. One hand supported his head, but the other, ungloved, was white, bore more than one jewelled ring, and lay carelessly near the half-open bosom of his vest, as if it had slipped thence in slumber. "'A fit owner for such a gallant beast!' murmured Jutha, as she turned to pat once again the neck of the steed, for the docile creature had suffered the young girl to retain his rein, and to draw him after her to the spot where his master lay. "'Sure, a prince! No less! Such a prince as they tell of in the wondrous tales I have heard! How passing beautiful he is! What can he be? Where can he have come from? From fairyland? Or from the court, surely?' added she, as she looked again upon the handsome stranger. "'Are there such princes at the court?' whispered Ophelia. "'I came from the court, they say, but I remember none such princes there. I remember no one but my own papa, my dear mother, my brother Laertes, and those but faintly. You were little more than a baby when you left them to come hither. It can hardly be that you should remember them,' said Jutha. "'But I do, though only dimly as if they were a long way off in the distance. And so they are," added the little Ophelia musingly. They are across the wide, wide sea, far away from me. But perhaps one day I shall see my own mamma again. I remember how she looked well when she leaned her face close to mine as we sat together journeying here, and how sweet her voice sounded, and how soft her arm and her side felt as she hugged me close round against her. I wish I could have her to hug me close again. I wish she would come. I want to see her. I want my own mamma." And the child looked and spoke plaintively, impatiently. "'Hush, dear child,' said Jutha soothingly. 
Look at this brave stranger! See how bright and handsome his clothing! Look what a goodly, beauteous face he hath! He is as glorious to behold as the king's son, who had a fairy for his godmother." Whether it was the plaintive tone of the child, or the animated one of her companion, which penetrated the drowsed senses of the sleeper, they were together sufficient to awaken him. He opened his eyes and beheld the two young girls standing there opposite to him, with his courser between them, the bridal rein in the elder's hand. "'I have brought your horse, sir,' said she, dropping her simple curtsey. He was straying." "'And a fair damsel to bring errant knight his palfrey could not be found in all the realm of enchantment,' said the stranger, springing to his feet and receiving the bridle from her. "'Surely I have wandered upon charmed ground, and you are one of its denizens.' "'A plain country maiden, none other, sir, and this her mother's nurse-charge,' said Jutha, curtseying once again, and presenting the little Ophelia. "'Still a charmer, an earthly charmer, if you will, yet no less bewitching,' said the handsome stranger. "'Prithee, tell me thy name, pretty one, and I will tell thee mine. It is Eric.' "'And mine is Jutha, sir, at your service.' "'Nay, and thou volunteerest to serve me, to do my bidding, pretty Jutha, thou must call me by my name, as I call thee by thine. So if thou wouldst pleasure me, thou wilt no more say sir.' "'I would please you, indeed, sir, Eric, and I knew how.' "'It pleasures me, believe me, to hear mine own name spoken with an artless tongue, and with a blushing innocence of face like that I look upon. Truly thou seem'st an opening rose, Jutha, and yonder quiet little thing a close-furled bud, that promises to be just such another flower of beauty as thyself, when she shall have reached thy age of bloom. In good faith I may thank my Lady Fortune, who brought me wearied from the chase, to cast myself down in an enchanted wood, that I might dream a waking dream such as this." "'You were hunting, then, Sir Eric,' said Jutha when, as she spoke, a mounted horseman rode up, and addressing the stranger in a tone of respect that showed them to be servant and master, announced that the chase was concluded, adding that His Majesty had noticed the Lord Eric's absence, and had desired some one to search the wood, and collect stragglers from the hunting-train, as the royal party was now returning. "'Tis well, Trasco. Ride thou on. I will speedily overtake thee, and tend His Majesty,' said Lord Eric. Then, vaulting into the saddle, he raised his hat, kissed his hand, and saying, "'I must obey the king's command now, but I shall find a time to see more of my wood-nymphs,' gave the spur to his horse, and was gone. There was an end of the story-telling for that day. Jutha could talk of nothing else during the rest of the ramble but of the noble stranger, of his handsome face and figure, of his gallant bearing, of his milk-white steed, of his unexpected appearance, and of his speedy departure. Perhaps it was because she had so thoroughly exhausted the subject, in thus discussing it with her young companion, or perhaps it was because they found on their arrival the thoughts of all at home engaged with other matters, Batilda being busy scolding Ulf and preparing the evening meal, and the rest bent solely upon having the supper ready as soon as possible. But certain it is that the encounter in the wood was never mentioned at the cottage by either Jutha or Ophelia. The young girl seemed satisfied with the interest it awakened in herself, and the child was of a quiet, retiring nature, which seldom induced her to communicate much with those around her. She was habitually silent, observant rather than given to make remarks in words, contented to look on, to listen, to notice what was passing, and to let others speak and act, while she held her peace. The nurse, Batilda, had long left her wholly to the care of Jutha. The good woman saw that the young girl and the child sufficed in companionship to each other. 
While she herself had ample employment in the care of her idiot son Ulf, whose gormandizing propensities and mischievous pranks required her utmost vigilance. At one time he was found in the dairy, scooping the cream off the pans with the palms of his hand, and holding out some in his great hairy paw to the little Ophelia, who stood there as usual, half quakingly, half wonderingly, then supping it up himself, lest it should trickle and waste before she would advance. His mother cuffs him soundly, nay, gets a stick and belabours him as long as she has breath, but the lout only pretends to blubber. "'Haven't you done yet, mother?' while by his sly grin he shows that her woman's arm fails to inflict any very severe chastisement. "'Cub that thou art! Thou shalt feel the weight of thy father's cudgel, and I ket thee at any more of thy pilfering tricks!' At another time he was discovered in the storeroom, stealing the honeycomb that had just been collected from the beehives. Ophelia finds him there, lurking in a corner sucking his paws, with greedy joy gleaming in his eyes. They call me Ulf the Bear. Ha, ha! The bear's fond of honey," he said with a grin, as he swilled and licked the handfuls of streaming comb. Taste! It's luscious nice. Taste some of the bear's honey." And with his usual uncouth wish for her to share, he held some towards the child. She shrank back. "'It isn't yours. Best not touch it.' "'Hush! Mother'll hear but his mother had already heard. She fetched Sigurd, who happened that day to be at work upon something that wanted doing at the cottage, and in a few minutes more Ophelia stood scared and trembling at the terrible sounds that reached her ear, of the father's blows, of Ulf's cries, more like the howls of a wild beast than anything human. Among these rough cottage people, more and more did the child feel herself alone and apart. Her shyness and sparing speech grew upon her. She was not unhappy, but she became grave. Strangely quiet and reserved for a little creature of her years, and so confirmed in her habit of silence that she might almost have passed for dumb. She might be said to feel her uncongenial position without understanding it. She did not comprehend what made her serious, but she was rarely disposed to cheerfulness. She did not know why she was disinclined to talk, but she seldom met with any inducement to open her lips, and insensibly she kept them closed. With her sweet, earnest eyes, her placid though unsmiling countenance, and her still demeanour, she had a look of reflection, of pensiveness, that better becomes womanhood grown than childhood. Childhood should be free from heed, light-hearted, undreading, encouraged in its frankness, its confidence, its every hopeful, eager thought and word. Still, however, she had one resource, her one companion with whom she could assimilate and feel at ease. With Jutha, rambling abroad, she was never dull, never sad. With her her heart knew no heaviness, no misgiving, no loneliness. With her her spirits rose to gladness, and she was, for the time, unreservedly happy. She used to spring forth into the open air like a young bird, newly franchised, escaped from restraint and soaring into its native element of buoyancy and freedom. With her hand in Jutha's, she would bound along, eager to take her fill of liberty, body and mind. Her spirit, no less than her limbs, seemed to revel in this season of unrestriction. For she then knew the joy that knows not how it is joyful. She felt the glee that asks not why it is glee. The joy and the glee of that age, which should know no shadow of care. For some reason best known to herself, Jutha now invariably took the way towards the wood. Their former walks among the rocks or along the seashore were all abandoned, on some pretext or other, in favour of the path which led through the forest and the little Ophelia, 
loving the mysterious grandeur of its high-arching trees, was well pleased it should be their constant resort. On one of the first mornings they returned there, they had strolled far into its woody recesses, Jutha, as usual, entertaining her young companion with tales and marvels. But her tone was hurried, her attention seemed elsewhere, and her look, expectant at first, grew every moment more thoughtful and vexed. Suddenly it brightened, and Ophelia, following the direction of her eyes, saw coming towards them the figure of Lord Eric on his milk-white horse. He threw himself from the saddle the moment he descried them, and eagerly approached. He seemed overjoyed to meet his nymphs of the wood, and sauntered long by their side, leading his horse by the bridle, talking and laughing animatedly. He shared their grassy seat when they stopped to rest from the noontide heat. He shared the contents of their basket when they produced their noontide meal, declaring he had never tasted daintier fare. He gave himself up to the spirit of the forest ramble, as though he could wish no pleasanter enjoyment. Morning after morning, he returned to make one in the wood-party, and never had the hours thus spent seemed to fly by so lightly. Certainly Jutha found it so, for the shadows of evening would steal upon them with warning to return home, ere she could well believe it to be afternoon. The little Ophelia was less charmed with this addition to their society. She cared not that the stranger should come. She had always found sufficient delight in listening to Jutha, in walking and wandering with her. And though this gentleman was a very sprightly companion, and talked gaily and good-humouredly, yet as his conversation was chiefly addressed to Jutha, and was often carried on in a voice that scarce reached beyond her ear, it soon became productive of little entertainment to the child. Gradually it grew to be exclusively confined to the two others, and the little girl was left to entertain herself as best she might, with her own thoughts or her own resources. She by degrees perceived that they were too much occupied with each other to be able to give much attention to her. She had hitherto been accustomed to have every question answered, every enquiry satisfied. Her friend Jutha had till now been always ready to furnish her with replies, and even to supply her with fresh store of amusement from her own talk. It was otherwise, since this stranger had intruded upon their pleasant wood rambles. Jutha had now no look, no word, but for him. But then she herself seemed so contented, that her child-friend could not altogether find it in her heart to regret what made Jutha so evidently, so radiantly happy. She had never seen her look so full of joy, so full of spirit. Her eye sparkled, her colour rose, her voice had exultation in its tone as she took her way with Ophelia to these rambles in the wood, where they were sure to be joined by their new acquaintance. Once on meeting him the child saw his face assume a vexed look as it rested upon her. He turned to Jutha, and pointing to a nosegay she wore in her bodice, he said, "'Why bring flowers? I can gather you some fresh here. Leave them at home, I beseech you, another time. Especially the rosebuds." He said the last words with emphasis, though he dropped his voice as he uttered them. But Jutha answered simply as she drew the flowers from her bosom, "'I brought them for you. I thought you would like some of our garden blossoms. They are but wild flowers that grow here in the wood." He took them from her offered hand. "'I love wild flowers—wood flowers best of all. Yet I thank thee that thou thoughtst of Eric in gathering these,' said he in his low-breathed tones. Still, canst thou not still farther pleasure him, by omitting to bring with thee the green unopened bud? Thou knowest, the blowing rose, with its rich beauty of colour and fragrance, is the one he could look upon, never tiring, to the exclusion of every flower else." He glanced for an instant at Ophelia, as he pronounced one part of this speech, 
with a look which she had before noted in his face, and which had told her plainly enough that he not only ceased to include her in the conversation he addressed to his nymphs of the wood, but that he would be heartily glad to have her out of hearing, nay, to be rid of her presence altogether. The child thought to herself, "'He wishes me away, but till I see that Jutha does also I shall not go. I wish he were away. Jutha and I were very happy together till he came. I know what he means about the rosebud, but till I find Jutha wants me out of hearing I shan't stir.' So far from Jutha wishing her to leave them, Ophelia could hear that she was resisting Lord Eric's urgently repeated request, that she would send the garden rosebud to gather wild ones, with such sentences as, "'I dare not indeed, my lord. My mother gives her to my care. I must not let her stray out of sight.' He seemed still to plead against these objections, to overrule them by asking what harm could come to her charge in this quiet, solitary place, adding, "'Send her from us.' I cannot speak to you as openly as I would, sweet Jutha, with that child listening to every word I utter. I want to speak to you fully, entirely." "'What can you have to say to me, my lord, that she may not hear? You can have naught to tell me that—' Jutha's voice trembled, and a bright colour stole into her face. Then, in a voice that strove for more firmness, but which still hesitated, she went on. Were I to send her away, she would be sure to come back in fewer moments than your lordship thinks. She does not like to be from me long." "'For however few moments, for however short a space, I would have you to myself, were it but for one instant. Do not refuse me, Jutha." The young girl seemed still to hesitate, and the child could hear him mutter some reproach about want of confidence and not trusting him, which seemed to have more effect in moving Jutha than anything he had yet said. She stopped, hung her head, and faltered something in reply. Lord Eric led her to a seat on the turf beneath a goodly beech-tree. Then turning to Ophelia, he said in his most persuasive tone of gaiety and good-humour, as he unfastened the knot of a bright silken scarf which hung across his shoulder, "'Here, take this, my little maid, I give it thee for a sash, and thou wilt go gather me all the gay crow-flowers, king-cups, and daffy-down-dillies thou canst find in the forest, to make a chaplet for this queen of the woods, thy fair friend Jutha." "'I don't want the sash,' said the little Ophelia, drawing back as he attempted to put it round her. "'Nor do you want the flowers. You want me to go away, out of hearing, while you tell Jutha some secret you have for her. I do not care to do what you wish, because you tried to make me believe the pretense of the flowers and the sash, instead of asking me at once to leave you. But I do care to please Jutha, and if she tells me she wishes to listen to your secret without my hearing, I will go away at once." Jutha said nothing, but there was the bright colour in her cheek which Ophelia could see, though the young girl still hung her head. "'Jutha is curious to learn the secret you have to tell her. I can see she is,' said the child, peeping under her friend's drooping face. I'll go, then, and I'll stay away a long while, that you may have your talk out freely." The young girl made a faint attempt to detain her, but it was unperceived by Ophelia, who walked straight away among the trees, bent upon relieving them of her presence. Once out of sight and hearing of her late companions, the child strode on more leisurely, now pulling some stray twig or blossom that caught her eye as she rambled along, now stopping to peer into some briery tangle of close underwood, some leafy brake or thicket, where she fancied she would spy a bird's nest, now halting to watch some scrambling squirrel that would dart up the barky trunk of a high tree, till he reached the topmost bough, whence he would slyly peep down at her in triumphant security. And still as she wandered on, trying to amuse her thoughts thus, they would ever and anon recur to the question of what could be the secret the gentleman had to tell Jutha. 
yet why should I ponder farther upon it? It is clear they do not wish I should know it, or they would not have sent me out of the way while it was telling. If I endeavour to find it out by guessing, it is almost as bad as trying to do so by listening. I won't guess any more. I won't even think about it. I'll see if I can find the beautiful white horse, and amuse myself by feeding him." And many times after this, Ophelia was glad to find in the noble horse a source of entertainment during her solitary rambles. For her walks in the forest were all solitary now. Whatever might be the secret Lord Eric had to tell, it was evidently not to be told in one conversation. For time after time he made pretext to send Ophelia away, while he and Jutha talked alone. And the child, finding that her friend no longer sought to detain her by her side, left them together undisturbed. Though she herself could not feel so happy, separated thus frequently from her kind girl companion, with whom she had formerly spent such pleasant hours, yet so long as Jutha seemed the happier by the arrangement, Ophelia could fancy that it contented herself. But after a time Jutha's look of joy faded. Her spirits, that at first seemed almost too exuberant, as if they must needs express the secret gladness she hoarded at heart, in bright looks, and a mirthful tone of voice that finding speech too sober, would often break forth into bursts of song, varied frequently. The air of inward ecstasy and conscious rapture, involuntarily betraying itself in a thousand vivacious gestures, was exchanged for an appearance of anxiety and uneasiness. There were moments when her joyful looks rekindled. Her exuberance of gaiety returned, but it was fitfully, her spirits fluctuated, she was alternately at height of glee or lost in thought. She would still, in her cheerful moments, break out into snatches of the song which was her favourite at this time, for bonny sweet robin is all my joy, singing with an eager look and exulting expression of voice, but there was solicitude mingled with the eagerness, there was forced mirth in the tone of exultation. These periods of cheerfulness grew rarer and less lasting. They were more often replaced by fits of thoughtfulness and brooding anxiety. The sparkling, bright uplook gave way to a downcast expression, or when the eye was raised, it was with a beseeching appeal in its tearful sadness. End of Part Three